Part Three, Chapter Nine, of In Chancery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leanne Howlett. The Foresight Saga Two, In Chancery, by John Galsworthy. Part Three, Chapter Nine. Out of the web. On foresight changed the announcement of Jolly's death among a batch of troopers caused mixed sensation. Strange to read that Jolyon Forsyte, fifth of the name and direct descent, had died of disease in the service of his country and not be able to feel it personally. It revived the old grudge against his father for having estranged himself for such was still the prestige of old Jolyon that the other Forsytes could never quite feel, as might have been expected, that it was they who had cut off his descendants for irregularity. The news increased, of course, the interest and anxiety about Val. But then Val's name was Darty, and even if he were killed in battle or got the Victoria Cross, it would not be at all the same as if his name were Forsyte not even casualty or glory to the Haymans would be really satisfactory. Family pride felt defrauded. How the rumor arose, then, that something very dreadful, my dear, was pending, no one, least of all Soames, could tell, secret as he kept everything. Possibly some eye had seen Foresight versus Foresight and Foresight in the cause list, and had added it to Irene in Paris with a fair beard. Possibly some wall at Park Lane had ears. The fact remained that it was known, whispered among the old, discussed among the young, that family pride must soon receive a blow. Soames, paying one of his Sunday visits to Timothy's, paying it with the feeling that after the suit came on he would be paying no more, felt knowledge in the air as he came in. Nobody, of course, dared speak of it before him, but each of the four other Forsytes present held their breath, aware that nothing could prevent Aunt Julie from making them all uncomfortable. She looked so piteously at Soames, she checked herself on the point of speech so often, that Aunt Hester excused herself and said she must go and bathe Timothy's eye. He had a sty coming. Soames, impassive, slightly supercilious, did not stay long. He went out with a curse stifled behind his pale, just-smiling lips. Fortunately for the peace of his mind, cruelly tortured by the coming scandal, he was kept busy day and night with plans for his retirement, for he had come to that grim conclusion. To go on seeing all those people who had known him as a long-headed chap, an astute adviser, after that, no. The fastidiousness and pride, which was so strangely, so inextricably blended in him with possessive obtuseness, revolted against the thought. He would retire, live privately, go on buying pictures, make a great name as a collector. After all, his heart was more in that than it had ever been in law. In pursuance of this now fixed resolve, he had to get ready to amalgamate his business with another firm without letting people know for that would excite curiosity and make humiliation cast its shadow before. He had pitched on the firm of Cuthcutt, Holliday, and Kingston, two of whom were dead. 
The full name after the amalgamation would therefore be Cuthcott, Holliday, Kingston, Forsyte, Bastard, and Forsyte. But after debate as to which of the dead still had any influence with the living, it was decided to reduce the title to Cuthcott, Kingston, and Forsyte, of whom Kingston would be the active and Soames the sleeping partner. For leaving his name, prestige, and clients behind him, Soames would receive considerable value. One night, as befitted a man who had arrived at so important a stage of his career, he made a calculation of what he was worth, and after writing off liberally for depreciation by the war, found his value to be some hundred and thirty thousand pounds. At his father's death, which could not, alas, be delayed much longer, he must come into at least another fifty thousand, and his yearly expenditure at present just reached two. Standing among his pictures, he saw before him a future full of bargains earned by the trained faculty of knowing better than other people. Selling what was about to decline, keeping what was still going up, and exercising judicious insight into future taste, he would make a unique collection, which at his death would pass to the nation under the title, Foresight Bequest. If the divorce went through, he had determined on his line with Madame Lamotte. She had, he knew, but one real ambition, to live on her renter in Paris near her grandchildren. He would buy the goodwill of the restaurant Batain at a fancy price. Madame would live like a queen mother in Paris on the interest, invested as she would know how. Incidentally, Soames meant to put a capable manager in her place and make the restaurant pay good interest on his money. There were great possibilities in Soho. On Annette he would promise to settle fifteen thousand pounds, whether designedly or not, precisely the sum old Jolyon had settled on that woman. A letter from Jolyon's solicitor to his own had disclosed the fact that those two were in Italy, and an opportunity had been duly given for noting that they had first stayed at a hotel in London. The matter was clear as daylight, and would be disposed of in half an hour or so, but during that half hour, he, Soames, would go down to hell, and after that half hour, all bearers of the Forsyte name would feel the bloom was off the rose. He had no illusions like Shakespeare that roses by any other name would smell as sweet. The name was a possession, a concrete, unstained piece of property, the value of which would be reduced some twenty per cent, at least. Unless it were Roger, who had once refused to stand for Parliament, and, oh irony, Jolyon, hung on the line, there had never been a distinguished foresight. But that very lack of distinction was the name's greatest asset. It was a private name, intensely individual, and his own property. It had never been exploited for good or evil by intrusive report. He and each member of his family owned it wholly, sanely, secretly, without any more interference from the public than had been necessitated by their births, their marriages, their deaths. And during these weeks of waiting and preparing to drop the law, he conceived for that law a bitter distaste, so deeply did he resent its coming violation of his name, forced on him by the need he felt to perpetuate that name in a lawful manner. The monstrous injustice of the whole thing excited in him a perpetual suppressed fury. 
He had asked no better than to live in spotless domesticity, and now he must go into the witness-box, after all these futile, barren years, and proclaim his failure to keep his wife. Incur the pity, the amusement, the contempt of his kind. It was all upside down. She and that fellow ought to be the sufferers, and they were in Italy. In these weeks the law he had served so faithfully, looked on so reverently as the guardian of all property, seemed to him quite pitiful. What could be more insane than to tell a man that he owned his wife, and punish him when someone unlawfully took her away from him? Did the law not know that a man's name was to him the apple of his eye, that it was far harder to be regarded as cuckold than a seducer? He actually envied Jolie in the reputation of succeeding where he, Soames, had failed. The question of damages worried him, too. He wanted to make that fellow suffer, but he remembered his cousin's words. I shall be very happy. With the uneasy feeling that to claim damages would not make Jolian, but himself suffer. He felt uncannily that Jolian would rather like to pay them. The chap was so loose. Besides, to claim damages was not the thing to do. The claim, indeed, had been made almost mechanically, and as the hour drew near, Soames saw in it just another dodge of this insensitive and topsy-turvy law to make him ridiculous, so that people might sneer and say, Oh, yes, he got quite a good price for her. And he gave instructions that his counsel should state that the money would be given to a home for fallen women. He was a long time hitting off exactly the right charity, but having pitched on it, he used to wake up in the night and think, It won't do, too lurid, it'll draw attention. Something quieter, better taste. He did not care for dogs, or he would have named them, and it was in desperation, at last, for his knowledge of charities was limited, that he decided on the blind. That could not be inappropriate, and it would make the jury assess the damages high. A good many suits were dropping out of the list, which happened to be exceptionally thin that summer, so that his case would be reached before August. As the day drew nearer, Winifred was his only comfort. She showed the fellow feeling of one who had been through the mill, and was the femme soul in whom he confided, well knowing that she would not let Darty into her confidence. 